Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. rest of you can open your Bibles to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. I'm going to begin this morning with a trivia question that some of you may know. A lot of you may know. What do Annie, Hugo, Lilo and Stitch, Oliver Twist, Anne of Green Gables, and Mowgli from the Jungle Book all have in common? Some of you are like, I have no idea. They're all famous characters from either television, literature, or film who were orphans. Little Orphan Annie, Oliver Twist, Mowgli. And all these stories about orphans end up with pretty happy endings. Now, some of you may have seen the movie Home Alone, a famous Christmas movie. Kevin, the young boy, is inadvertently left at home while his parents leave to go on Christmas vacation. And it's a comical movie where he wards off these bungling criminals by doing all these weird antics. But it's really a parent's nightmare to leave your child behind abandoned as you go off to holiday. Now, growing up as a pastor's kid, we spent a lot of time at church. And one time when I was in third grade and my brother was in first grade, we had a very funny family story that happened. Uh, My parents drove two separate cars to church that day and we got home after church and we we pulled into the driveway and we, we got ready to eat lunch and my mom looked at my dad and said, where's Scott? And my dad looked at my mom and said, well, I thought you had him. No, I thought you had him. Who had him? Well, Scott was nowhere to be found, so where was he? So my dad, in a panic, rushes back to the church, looks all over the church, and finally goes into the sanctuary where it's pitch back black, and my, my little brother is sleeping on one of the pews. And my, my dad wakes him up and says, Scott, we forgot you. We need to go home. He had no idea. He's like just sleeping in the sanctuary. So it's a funny story in our family about how, quote, unquote, my little brother got left behind at church. But in reality, being abandoned or being left behind is sometimes not a lighthearted situation. Some of you may struggle this morning with abandonment issues because of things that have happened to you in your past. Maybe you're betrayed by a loved one. Maybe you have difficulty trusting people because of issues in your past where you felt abandoned, you felt left behind, you felt alone. And maybe you're here this morning and, and you're, you're fearing your future. Maybe, maybe you're a young college student and you think to yourself, I'm never going to find that perfect person. I'm never going to get married and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just live my whole life and be lonely. Or maybe you're here and you're thinking, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lose my spouse and, and I'm going to be lonely. I'm going to be lonely the rest of my life. You fear that, being abandoned, being lonely, being left behind. Now, why do I bring up these issues of being left behind, orphaned, abandoned? These were the exact same feelings that the disciples had 
on the night that Christ was betrayed. They were anxious. They were confused. Remember all through chapter 14, what has Jesus been telling his disciples? I'm leaving. I'm going away. I'm going back to the Father. You're not going to see me for a while. I'm sending the helper, the paraclete, the counselor, the Holy Spirit, because I'm leaving and going back to the Father. Now, we know how the story ends, right? Jesus dies, rises again, appears back to his disciples, but this is the very first time they're hearing it. They're hearing this information for the very first time. So they're struggling. They're confused. What do you mean, Jesus, you're leaving? What do you mean that you're going away? All we know is that you've been with us the past three years and you've met all of our needs and you've physically been there for us and you're, you're using this weird imagery about the, the counselor, the, the comforter coming and, and this Holy Spirit that's supposed to come and take your place. We don't understand what's going on, Jesus. We're, we're afraid. We're fearful. We, we're not sure of the future. What do you mean that you're leaving? And it's in the midst of all these fears and doubts and trepidations that Jesus is going to address something very, very powerful for us this morning. He makes a promise to them, but this promise is also for us. So let's pick up in John chapter 14, starting in verse 18. In verse 18, this is Jesus speaking, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and he will come to him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. What's Jesus doing here? What's his main point? What's the big idea? What's the, what's the main thrust? Here's Jesus' main point. Jesus' resurrection grants you true life with God. True life with God. And I'm going to explain what true life is. Now, Jesus here, sort of as a father figure to these disciples, says, Listen, guys, I'm not going to leave you as as orphans. I'm not going to abandon you. I'm going to come back. In just a little while, I'm going to come back. As a matter of fact, we know what happens. Three days later, Jesus is going to rise from the grave. He's going to come back. He's going to appear to his disciples. And if you read the book of, of Acts and you read the rest of the Gospels, you find out that Jesus only appears to his disciples. He doesn't appear to the world. He doesn't manifest himself to the world. He's going to appear directly to those disciples who will be eyewitnesses, who will be able to give testimony to his resurrection, who will be able to write the scripture. Jesus will come back to them. And that was a promise just to these men, that Jesus would come back to them. None of us here are going to ever physically see Jesus come back to us after the resurrection. Yes, we'll see him at the second coming. But this was a promise directed directly to these men. But there's a wonderful truth that Jesus gives here. It's it's a little nugget that's hidden in a word that he says that really unpacks our identity in Christ. 
It unpacks for us some truths about the gospel. And so I hope that what we share this morning will bring some encouragement to you because there may be many of you here this morning that may be struggling in your walk with Christ. If I were to ask you, how is your walk with Christ? You, you would tell me, you know what? I'm, I'm really struggling because I'm not sure if God really loves me. As a matter of fact, Pastor Sean, if you were to ask me some deeper questions, I'm not sure I'm actually even saved. I'm not sure about all this. I'm struggling. I'm not sure where I am with Christ. I need some hope. I need some encouragement. I need a word this morning. That could you please tell me some assurance? And so I pray that this message this morning will give you encouragement if you lack assurance. Listen to the words of Jesus in verse 19. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. That last phrase there. Because I live, you also will live. Jesus says, because I live. It's a timeless present. In other words, I'm living now. When I die and rise again, I will continue to live. I'm always living. As a matter of fact, I am the source of true life. I am the living Christ. Now, what does this mean? That Christ is the source of our life. Because I live, Jesus says. Because I'm the living Christ, because I'm the resurrected Christ, you too will live. Now, we've seen this truth all throughout the Gospel of John, that Jesus is the source of life. John chapter 1, verse 4. In him was life. And life was the light of men. John 5, 26, For as the Father has life in himself, so he's granted the Son also to have life in himself. John 6, 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. John eleven twenty five. 25, Jesus said to her, that's Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. John 14, 6, right here in our own passage of Scripture, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then one of my favorite passages of Scripture from the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 7, 25. Consequently, he, that is Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is the source of our life. Now that brings up a question. Okay, what type of life are we talking about here? Jesus says, because I live, you will live. Live. Does that mean I'm just going to exist? What type of life is Jesus talking about that he's going to give us? Because what did Paul say in Philippians 1.21? For me to live is Christ, to die is to gain. What does that mean? What, is, what does it mean that Christ gives you life? What type of life are we talking about? What does it mean to truly live? Well, so what I want to do in the context of this passage of Scripture is I want us to look at five realities of our life with Christ based upon this passage of Scripture. If you are a Christian, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, these are realities that are true for you whether you feel like they are true for you or not. They're realities that are true whether you feel it or not. 
What are these realities that Jesus has given us according to true life? Well, the first one's probably the most basic. Here's the first. Jesus grants you eternal life. Now, that, that's, that's the most basic. When you become a Christian, Jesus grants you eternal life, life forever. But what I want you to think about is I want you to think about life that Jesus is talking about here as a diamond. It's one diamond, and when you put that one diamond behind the black um, background and you move that diamond around, it's the same diamond, but what do you see? You see different facets, you see different angles, you see the beauty of the diamond. So we're talking about one life that Christ gives us, but as you move the diamond around, you'll see the different aspects of what this life is. So at its core, it's eternal life. It's life forever with Christ. We've seen this in the Gospel of John already. John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. John 6, 47, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. John 10, 28, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. So this is the foundational type of life that Jesus gives us. It's eternal life. It's life forever in heaven with him, and that eternal life starts the moment you trust in Christ for salvation. So you have eternal life right now. You will experience the fullness of that when you get to heaven, but right now you have the promise of eternal life. But what's the second thing? Now, it's in context here. Here's the second type of life, the aspect of life. It's this. The Holy Spirit gives you this new life in the new birth. Context, context, context. What are the verses right before this? What does Jesus promise in verse 16? We looked at this last week. I will ask the Father. He will give you another helper, advocate, paraclete, counselor, whatever word you want to use there, to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. Introduce the Holy Spirit. Okay, we've got verse 18 down to verse 24 that we looked at today. Pick up verse 25. These things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father sends in my name, he will teach you all these things. Sandwiched in between this discussion about life is Holy Spirit on one side, Holy Spirit on the other side. The Holy Spirit is the one who gives you this life. And we've already seen it in the Gospel of John. When Jesus was talking to Nicodemus... Back in John chapter 3, what did Jesus tell this religious leader of Israel that had to happen to him? John 3, 5 through 8, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is everyone who is born of of the Spirit. Very simple. 
If you're going to have this life in Christ that Jesus promises, the Holy Spirit is the one that gives you that life when he comes and causes you to be born again. You can't produce this because spirit produces this. Flesh cannot produce this. You and your power can't produce this. You can't just decide one day that you're going to give yourself spiritual life. The Spirit's got to give you this life just like the wind blows. That's why Jesus says in John 6, 63, it is the Spirit who gives Life, the flesh is of no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. So when you become a Christian, you get new life that the Holy Spirit breathes into you that makes you actually a brand new person. You are born again. That's why Paul can say in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation the old is passed away behold the new is come you're a new creation god has sent his holy spirit to give you life that's why paul can say in ephesians 2 4 through 5 but god being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with christ by grace you've been saved now, the Bible uses a lot of different terms to describe this. Being born again, being given life, being raised to spiritual life, being resurrected, being regenerated, giving a new heart. All of this happens because the Holy Spirit is going to be the one who's going to come and give you this new life in Christ. He's going to give you the new birth. And so the only way you're going to have this new life in Christ is if the Holy Spirit comes and gives that to you in the new birth. He's going to make you born again. He can overcome that deadness. He can overcome that rebellion. He can overcome that sin and depravity and reach down into the depths of your heart and change you from the inside out and actually give you the life of Christ within your very heart. The Holy Spirit does that as the spirit of truth. Remember what we saw last week? Look up at verse 16. I mean, verse 17. He dwells in you. He's going to live in you, and he will be with you. So, number one, it's eternal life. Number two, this life that we're talking is is a Holy Spirit-produced life that the Holy Spirit gives you in the new birth. But here's the third thing. This new life brings you into wonderful union with Christ. Now let me explain union with Christ because we don't often use this term. You may not realize this, but there are only two places in the Bible where the word Christian is used. But how do we often talk about ourselves? I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. There's nothing wrong with that. We're all Christians, right? But that's not the way the Bible really talks about us. The Bible talks more about us being in Christ and Christ in us. Notice what Jesus says in verse 20. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. We're going to be in Jesus, and he's going to be in us. It's called 
union with Christ. It's this whole idea of being in Christ. Back in the late 1600s, there was a Scottish pastor named Henry Scugall. And he had a friend that was struggling with the salvation, a friend that was really doubting, and a friend that was about to walk away from the faith. And so he wrote him a letter. And this letter that Henry Scugall wrote has become a famous, actually, little booklet. And the booklet now is called The Life of God in the Soul of Man. The Life of God in the Soul of Man. And here's what Henry Scugall said. He says, quote, We know by experience that true faith is a union of the soul with God, a real participation in the divine nature, the very image of God drawn upon the human soul. When you become a Christian, the very life of God comes into your soul and you are in Christ and Christ is in you. Think of all the ways this is used throughout the New Testament, especially in Paul's writings. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are, what? In Christ Jesus. If you're in Christ Jesus, you're no longer under condemnation. You're no longer guilty. You're no longer held accountable for your sins because you're in Christ, and he's in you. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Christ lives in me. Ephesians 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every spiritual blessing that you have available to you comes in your relationship of being in Christ. Probably one of the most profound statements about this is what Paul says in Colossians 3, 3 through 4. Paul says, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So one of the most profound truths that you can understand is this. Because the Holy Spirit has come and taken up residence in your heart, you are in Christ. Christ lives in you. Now you may be asking a question. If Christ lives in me, I must have a really big heart because Christ is a big person. Maybe he's six foot tall. I don't know. You're thinking, how does Christ physically get into my heart? Where's Jesus right now? Literally. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father in heaven as the glorified Christ in a resurrected body. So Jesus is not literally in your heart because he's in heaven right now. So the question then becomes, okay, how does Jesus then come and live in your heart? That's the role of the Holy Spirit. That's the role of the Holy Spirit to come into our hearts to give us the presence of Jesus who's in heaven right now. J.I. Packer beautifully says it this way. He says, the Holy Spirit, we might say, is the matchmaker, the celestial marriage broker, whose role it is to bring us and Christ together and ensure that we stay together. So how can Christ, how can you be in Christ? How can you have this union with Christ? The Holy Spirit grants you this life with Christ. This Holy Spirit gives you this union with Christ. So number one, you have eternal life. 
The Holy Spirit has to give you this life. Number three, this life is, is union with Christ. It's, it's being in Christ and Christ in you. But here's number four. Something happens to you when you are changed. Something happens to you when you're born again. If you're the same person you were before, something did not happen to you. If you've been born again, something new has happened to you. Here's number four. This new life in Christ produces a profound love for Christ. Four times Jesus says it here. You cannot escape it. If Jesus mentions something, once we pay attention. Twice we really pay attention. Here he does it four times. What does Jesus say four times here? Just count them up. Look at verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. There's number one. And he who loves me, there's number two, will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Go down to verse 23. Jesus answered, if anyone loves me, there's the third time, he will keep my word and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love, there's the fourth one, it's in the negative. Whoever does not love, does not keep my word. Four times Jesus says, if you love me. Now, here's the issue. When you're a non-believer, when, when you don't have life with Christ, when you're a lost person, you may admire Jesus. You may think he's a good moral teacher. You may think he's got some good things to say. You may think he's a good martyr, a good religious leader. You may even believe some of the facts about what Jesus did, but in your heart of hearts, you do not love Jesus. You may admire him, but you don't love him. You do not love Jesus as a lost person. You approach that relationship with Christ as cold, dispassionate admiration. But once the Holy Spirit gives you life, guess what he puts in you? He puts a love for Jesus in your heart, a deep, profound love for Jesus. Christ. And that didn't start with you. You didn't just one day wake up and decide to love Jesus. He loved you first. And because he loved you first, that gives you the capacity to love him back. Where do I find that in 1 John? 1 John 4, 7 through 10. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. There's that living language. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And you go down to, to verse 19, 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. God has changed your affections. When you become a Christian, God changes your heart. God changes your mind. God changes your desires. God gives you the, the joy, the capacity, the desire to love Christ, to, to really love him, to express that love, to, to serve him, to love him. The Christian life is not trying to muster up enough love for Jesus in hopes that he'll love you back. That will never work. The Christian life is not, I, if I just have happy feelings about Jesus, maybe he'll love me. No, here's the reality of Christianity. Christ has first loved you. Totally, absolutely, fully in the cross. And once the Holy Spirit gives you this new life, then you love him back. Not be, so that he will love you, but because he already loves you. And that love for you doesn't change. 
Do you realize God's love for you is constant? Some people have this idea. You know what? On those days where I'm, I'm reading my Bible, I'm memorizing scripture, I'm doing my journal, I'm having my quiet time, I'm not cussing at the dog, and I'm not speeding, and I'm having a few good thoughts in my head, God must really love me more. Ooh, he's got, he, I'm on God's good list today. On those days when I'm tanking it, I'm not having my quiet time, I'm cussing at my dog, I'm cussing at my wife, and I'm speeding or whatever, God must love me less. When I'm doing good, God's love for me is really good. When I'm doing bad, God's love for me is really bad. And so it's this fluctuation game. Uh Uh-uh. If you are a Christian, God's love for you is constant because of what God has done for you in Christ. Now, Now, hold that thought because you may be thinking, okay, that's a good deal. If God loves me constantly and he doesn't love me any more when I'm doing good and doesn't love me any less when I'm doing bad, this gives me a great opportunity to live however I want because he's just going to keep loving me and I can just keep sinning and it's a great relationship. Anybody want to contest that? Let's let Jesus do it. Because it's right here in the text. You can't go down that path. Now, yes, he gives you new affections. He puts that love in your heart. God loves you. You love him. There's this wonderful love relationship. But you have to ask the question, what kind of love is it? Is it this mushy, mamby-pamby, do-whatever-you-want kind of love? No, we've looked at this before. Jesus is going to repeat it four times. What type of love is it? Here's number five. This new life empowers you to obey Jesus' commandments with joy. This new life that the Holy Spirit has given you gives you now power. He empowers you to obey Jesus with joy. What does Jesus say here? Go back to verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. If you keep my commandments, it really proves that you love. How do you show you love Jesus? You keep his commandments. Now, now verse 21 is interesting. Read it carefully. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them. Two things there. You have Jesus' commandments and you keep Jesus' commandments. What's the difference between having his commandments and keeping them? Is it the same thing? It's different. When it talks about having Jesus' commandments, the way it's worded in the original language is not just, I got his commandments, I know what they are, I got the information. No, the way it's worded in the original language is, I have these commandments hidden deep in my heart and I love these commandments and I love his word and I desire to know what God's word is I have these commandments that's what Psalm 119 9 through 11 tells us how can a young man keep his way pure by guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. That's what it means to have Jesus' commandments. You've stored them up in your heart. You love them. You read them. You desire them. You have his commandments. But then notice the second thing Jesus says. Whoever has my commandments and what? Keeps them. Okay, you, you can love Jesus' commandments, you can have them in your heart, but rubber doesn't meet the road until you what, actually obey. You've got to keep those commandments. It's got to be daily obedience to Jesus. But here's the thing. Now, because of this new life that Jesus gives you through the Holy Spirit, you've got two things you didn't have before. You've got the want to and the can do. 
Understand what I'm saying? I want to obey Jesus, and now I can obey Jesus. Before, you didn't have either one of those things. You didn't want to, and you couldn't. The Holy Spirit gives you the desire to obey, and not only just the desire, the want to, he actually gives you the power to obey. So as a Christian, you can obey God with joy because the Holy Spirit gives you the power to be able to do that. 1 John 5, 3. This is the love of God that we keep his commandments. Sound familiar? And his commandments are not burdensome. Why are the commandments of Jesus not burdensome? Why are, they, why are they not a burden to us? When we look at God's commandments, we look at the word, why do we as Christians say, you know what? We don't look at the commandments of God and say, man, that's a bummer, that's a killjoy, that's just a bunch of legalistic rules that God's placed on me to take away my fun. I don't want to obey. You know, non-Christians can be pretty moral if they wanted to. Non-Christians can practice morality. They can be upright citizens. They can, they can go the speed limit. They can be moral. And guess what? In their heart, they can hate every minute of it. And they can grit their teeth and say, I'm only doing this so I don't get a speeding ticket, but I hate having to drive the speed limit. They look at the law. They look at rules. They look at God's commands, and they detest them because they see them as stifling. As a Christian, you look at this and say, God loves me so much, he's given me protection, he's given me direction, he's given me everything I need, and so I want to obey him with joy. It's not a drudgery, it's not, it's not a burden. Uh, you don't have to force obedience on a true child of God. You don't have to force a true child of God to obey. You obey out of the overflow of what God is doing in your hearts through that love and through the power of the Holy Spirit. You want to obey and you have the power to obey. It's not out of rote duty. It's not out of guilt. It's not so you earn brownie points with God. It's because you've got life. Notice again what Jesus says. Verse 19. Because I live, you also will live. You're going to have a new type of life. You're going to have eternal life. You're going to have a Holy Spirit-generated new life. This new life's going to give you union with Christ. This new life's going to put love in your heart for Christ. This new life's going to give you power in life to live according to the, to the ways of God. You're going to have all of these things in this new life. But there's an ultimate promise, and I don't know if you caught it. Look carefully at verse 23. It's the only time this is ever showing up in the Bible. Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And we, who's Jesus speaking about there? Who's we? Is it just him alone or who? We, the Father and I, will come to him and make our home with him. It's the only place in the Bible where it says the Father and the Son together will come and make their home in you. Interesting. Go back up to verse 17. What did Jesus just tell us? The spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him for he dwells with you and he will be in you. So who's in you? The Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit? Yes. Do you realize that all three persons of the Trinity, the very fullness of God himself, lives in your soul. That's a powerful, powerful 
understanding. Because where did God choose to dwell in the Old Testament? Tabernacle, temple, a physical structure. In the wilderness, it was the tabernacle that moved around, and finally they built the temple. And that's the only place God chose to show up, in the Holy of Holies. Do you realize now, if you're a Christian, you are the new Holy of Holies? You are the temple. It's no longer a a dwelling place that goes around in the desert or some type of monument in Jerusalem. You and I are the very temple of the living God, and the fullness of God dwells in us. Exodus 25, 8, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. That's what's, that, that was the Old Testament idea of the sanctuary, the temple. God would dwell just in that physical structure. But here's what Paul says about us. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own. 1 John 4, 13, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us. He lives in us. How do we know this? Because he's given us the Holy Spirit. It's a profound reality when you stop and think about it. The very fullness of everything that God is, Father, Son, Spirit, the promises we will come and make our home in you. We will give you new life. Because I live, you will live. What type of life is this? This is a profound, new, experiential type of life that nobody that's not a Christian can experience. If you're not a Christian, you don't have this life. You don't have the Father, Son, Holy Spirit dwelling in you as the fullness of God granting you this new life. And it's an anticipation of that final day when we get to heaven. What does Revelation 21.3 say? And I heard a loud voice from heaven from the throne, saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. We get to look forward to that final day when we get to all dwell together in the very presence of God. But right now, on this physical earth, in your physical body, you are the temple. We corporately are the temple of the living God. Now, how should this encourage you, this new life in Christ? What are these wonderful truths about having union with Christ, having the love of Christ, having the power of Christ, all these things that Christ gives you through the Holy Spirit? How should this give you encouragement today? Well, let me suggest to you three things that you can leave with this morning as far as encouragement. Here's number one. You should never fear being alone or abandoned. If the very fullness of God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit has taken up residence in your heart, you are never alone. You've got the fullness of God and all that he is living inside you. Never feel alone. Never feel abandoned. You will never be forsaken. What what does Deuteronomy 31.6 say? Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. It's repeated all throughout the Bible. He will never leave you or forsake you. 1 John 4.18 There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Because God loves you, because God and the fullness of God dwells in you, and you have this new life in Christ, you never need fear. You never need fear abandonment, never fear loneliness, never fear forsaken. As a matter of fact, why should you never feel forsaken? What were some of the words that Jesus spoke when he was on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because Jesus was forsaken, we will never be forsaken. 
So that's number one. Number two, encouragement. Everything you need for life and godliness is available to you in Christ. Don't tell me you don't have what you need. You've got everything you need to live the Christian life. How do I know that? Second Peter tells us that. Second Peter 1, 3 through 4. His divine power has granted to us a few things that pertain to life and godliness. Did I read that correctly? His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he's granted us his precious and very great promises so that through them you might become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. Big passage of scripture. Let me just give you the two main truths. Number one, you have all the power you need to live the Christian life. Number two, the the reason you have that is because you have the new life. You're partakers of the divine nature. You have new life in Christ. So every single person who is in Christ has everything you need for life and godliness. You have the power. You have the strength you have the love available to you you have everything you need but here's the third thing the more you grow in obedient love the more you'll see the glories of christ i think you know this experientially let me just ask you a question The more you're reading your Bible, the more you're praying, the more you're in gathered worship, the more you're walking with the Lord, the more you're close to the Lord. Am I right? The times that you're away, when you're isolated, when you're not growing, do you see the glories of the Lord as much? No. Notice what Jesus says in verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. I'm going to manifest myself. In other words, what Jesus is saying is this. The more you spend time reading about him, loving him, praying to him, spending time with him, the more he's going to show you himself. The more you're going to grow. And the more your, 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 your vision of Christ is going to be enlarged. See, here's why you sin. You want to know why you sin? Number one, because it's fun. Don't let anybody tell you you don't sin because it's fun. You you sin because it's fun. The reason most people sin is this. In that moment, Jesus is not better. Jesus is not greater. Jesus is not fuller and more satisfying. But the more you spend time focusing on Jesus, the bigger he becomes. Not that he's bigger He just appears bigger to you because you're growing and seeing more of him. That's why Paul can say in 2 Corinthians 3.18, we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another for this comes from the Lord who's the spirit. I've said this multiple times. I'll say it again. The more you look at Jesus, the more you begin to look like Jesus. And one of the fruits of obedience is is you're going to see more and more of Christ working in your life. You're going to see more of his glories. You're going to grow closer. You're going to become more intimate. He's going to manifest himself to you through that joyful obedience. So take great comfort in the words of Christ here. Because I live, because I'm the living one, because I'm resurrected, because Christ is alive, because he's the source of life, you will live. And what type of life is that? What type of life are you going to live? It's nothing less than having the very fullness of God. Father, Son, Spirit. 
living in you. It's as the old Scottish pastor said in his booklet, it's the glorious truth of the very life of God in the soul of man. And I don't know about you, but that should give you great cause for encouragement and power and assurance to know that God is with you, God is for you, God will lead you, God will empower you, and Jesus says, because I live, you will live. So let's bow our heads this morning, and let's spend some time thanking Jesus for the life that he alone gives us in the gospel. I really can't begin to comprehend the truth of these words of Jesus. Where Jesus, you say that you and the Father will come and make your home in us. And Holy Spirit, you will come and dwell in us. Father, I may not understand it, but I believe it to be true. Because it's a promise from Jesus, and he never lies. So, Father, this day would we all who are in Christ experience the confidence and the joy and the assurance to know that we have new life, we have eternal life, we have new desires, we have the love of God, we have the power of God, we are the very temple of God. We have everything that we need. You're never going to leave us or abandon us. It's the fullness of God in our souls. So Lord, if there's anybody here today that's feeling lonely or feeling abandoned or maybe even feeling orphaned or discouraged, would you remind them through the power of the Holy Spirit that they are not alone? If they are in Christ, they have the fullness of God living in them, granting them life and power and sustenance and strength. Thank you for that reality. And Lord, as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper this morning, help us to praise you for this life that we have in you, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. We're going to take the Lord's